0: Father, that is our prayer. We consecrate our hearts and our lives to you, uh, everything, Lord. And especially these moments as we come and gather together to worship you and to celebrate what you have accomplished for us, your, uh, the forgiveness you've uh, guaranteed through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we celebrate this today, but also, Lord, anticipate the life that you have set before us. Lord, you've given us this lives as Christians to stay here on this earth, that you've prayed, Jesus, that you've prayed that we would not be removed, but that we would face all these things, this earth, the joys, the struggles. And Lord, may we do this as we honor you and glorify you. Father, I pray that we would think about what is to come, the hardships, even the death, and then eventually the glory. And Lord, we pray that we would prepare ourselves, ready ourselves for these things, whether you come first, dear Jesus, or... We die, Lord. We want to be ready. And So, Lord, I pray for those who are not yet ready because they've not repented. And by faith, trust that Jesus, give give them repentance and faith today. All of us, Lord, we pray that you'd move in us to the power of your Spirit and the study and reading of your Holy Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's wonderful to be back with you. As some of you know, uh, Becky and I were... He gifted a scholarship to go to a conference a couple of weeks ago, and then I had to work for Uncle Sam last week, so even just being gone a couple of weeks makes me really miss being here with you in this pulpit, giving you the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 25, Matthew 25, and we're in that final parable there, verses 31 to 46, the final parable, the final paragraph as well of the Olivet Discourse. I've been in ministry now over 28 years, and my first, my first ministry job was summer internship, 1994, and I've realized that a lot of, if not most of, ministry can fall into one of two categories, preparing people for difficulty and helping people through difficulty. If you've not been with us, this is what Jesus is essentially doing. He's readying His men spiritually for what would come. He's teaching his men about spiritual readiness in four parables. And this is the fourth and final of these parables. After this, the book of Matthew is all about getting Jesus to the cross and eventually leading to the resurrection. So this is really the last few moments we see in the book of Matthew where Jesus is preaching and teaching his men. He talked about their immediate future, which was fraught with difficulty and death. And he spoke to them about the distant future. And then he launched into these parables to teach his men and us how to be ready for hardship, how to be ready for his return if he tarries or our own death, how do we prepare our hearts, how to be ready ourselves spiritually for what is to come. Well, let me read to you this very familiar parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats. It begins in verse 31... Of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and "'Feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? "'And when do we see you a stranger, and welcome you, "'or naked, and clothe you? "'And when do we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you?' "'And the king will answer them, "'Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, "'you did it to me.'" And he will say to those on his left, "'Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, "'prepared for the devil and his angels.'" For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. They also will answer, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it. To me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The terrifying truth is that these are the last words some of you will hear. And you'll be banished forever. You'll be united with a body that is, the Bible says, is fit for destruction, meaning it can last an eternity of torment and punishment and pain And you will be banished to forever aloneness and darkness, to the bottomless pit where you will pay for your sin and your ongoing sin as you continue to curse and show spite toward God. In this parable, Jesus gave us this unvarnished reality. Some people will be welcomed by God, given glorious eternal bodies fit for that glory, while others will face an eternity of suffering all alone forever and ever and ever. This is God's sovereign will. His elect, His chosen from before the foundation of the world will be regenerated. They will then hear and obey the gospel. They will set their lives to obey Him, to follow Him. Those not chosen will carry on according to their own desires. They'll be left to their own desires their corrupt will, they will deceive themselves and others, and in the end they will face justice for their sin. That is the sovereign will of God. However, I've mentioned this before, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, this is not what is often called the moral will of God. God's moral will is that none should perish, but all come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. And so God has mercy on humanity, giving them time, giving them often a a full lifetime to hear and understand and obey and respond to the gospel. Peter also said in 2 Peter chapter 3 that because of this patience, because of this mercy, He tarries. Christ has not returned yet. Why? Because of this great mercy. Yet Peter reminds his readers but the day of the Lord this is verse 10 of Second Peter three, "The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Peter continued, "Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? You see his application? If you have not repented, you should do so now. Make haste to the gospel, to the cross. Turn to Him. God's mercy is everlasting. You've you've heard it again and again and again. It's time to respond. If you are a believer, a true believer, make your calling and election sure. Living a life abandoned to Him by pursuing that life of holiness and godliness. Peter was there when Jesus spoke these words. Peter was listening to this, this very message, this very parable. Jesus' message, the Olivet Discourse, was not given to them. We talked about this before, to give them a time or a date of His return. Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. This message was not to give them some precise timeline, a bulletin of events that they could just read off of. No, this message was all about spiritual readiness. It was all about preparing their hearts. It's all about making them disciples, followers of Christ, making them ready And we know this is his prime objective because throughout his message, Jesus says over and over, be alert, be ready, be prepared. And then when it was time to apply it, he spent more than half of his sermon giving us these four parables, which are all about preparing your hearts for your death or for his return, whichever comes first. In light of this short life, in light of the truth that Jesus will one day return, how then should we Well, we've learned so far that each of these parables teaches us a little bit about spiritual readiness. What have we seen so far? First of all, from the parable at the end of chapter 24 about the wise and the foolish servant, we learned, one, to pursue integrity. We learned to pursue integrity. Integrity is not about being true to what you want or following your deceptive heart. It means being true to what God has created you to be. First of all, that is to be a human. The objective of all humans is to worship and honor God, to love Him, and to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And two, assuming that you're a believer, your second objective is to live like a believer, live like a child of God, live like a servant of God, live a life that pursues the life of Jesus Christ. You're someone who's a worshiper, you're someone who is a bond slave, someone who has willfully become His servant, you've decided to Surrender all and follow after Jesus. You've bonded yourself to your Master. Now serve Him forever. Pursue integrity to that calling. Pursue integrity to that mission. And that is what we want to be true. That's what integrity really is, living up to the standard as image-bearer, living up to the standard as Christian, as a Yahweh worshiper, a slave, a servant, a child, the bride of Christ. That first parable at the end of 24 taught us about these, this, these two servants, the wise servant who's true to his calling, who has integrity, who pursues it, and he's rewarded. It also taught us of a foolish servant who lacked integrity and who was punished eternally. So in light of Christ's return, in light of the life we are supposed to lead in this era, even if we die, what should we do? First of all, it is to pursue integrity. Be true to what God has called you to be, and that is his servant. Second, we learn to ensure authenticity. That's the beginning of chapter 25, verse 13 verses, is the parable of the ten virgins. The parable of the ten virgins taught us that in that last day, you don't want to be outed as a wedding crasher, someone who thinks they belong when in fact you do not. Someone who's inauthentic, someone who is a fake Christian, someone who foolishly Ignorantly, willfully presume that you'd make it, presume that you'd be swept in the king- kingdom just based on your proximity to or your involvement with or appearance of Christianity. And So what Jesus taught them of readiness is what Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians thirteen five: examine yourself, prove whether or not you are in the faith. Prove your genuineness. Make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're authentic. How do you know you're authentic? Do you believe the truth? Do you love the truth? Do you practice the truth? The third parable was a parable of the stewards. All that God has given us, good and bad, we are to steward for His glory. So number three, take responsibility. That's verses 14 to 30. Take responsibility. I spent some time, last time we were together talking about the fact that we live in an age of blame-shifting, shirking responsibility. This is the norm. Always find another person. Always look to her circumstances, whatever you can find to excuse your sin. This shirking of responsibility goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, does it not? That first sin, everyone's blaming one another. Ultimately, they're blaming God Himself. The wife you gave me It's your fault, really, God, that I've done this. It's your fault. And this is the attitude of the third servant. Remember this? Oh, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. It's really your fault. You're so hard, I had to bury it and do nothing with what you'd given me. It's really your fault. You know, Jesus encouraged his disciples, his followers, to seize the day, to redeem the time, to take responsibility. God had given them everything, good and bad. Experiences, family members, health, poverty, wonderful jobs, terrible jobs, great bosses, terrible bosses. God has given all of this to us to take responsibility and leverage these things for His glory. So pursue integrity, ensure authenticity, take responsibility. Now, if you think about all three of these things, three of these parables, they have to do with our vertical alignment Our love for God, our passion for God, what is happening above us. It to do with that first and greatest commandment to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This final parable is horizontal. What is a sure sign of salvation on the horizontal plane? It is loving others. First John chapter 4, verse 7, you're familiar with the text, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is love, that God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His, sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins beloved if god so loved us we ought to love one another so in this time before christ returns before you die how then should we live number four demonstrate charity demonstrate charity rc sproul said that the three most hated doctrines in the Bible are the doctrines of hell, predestination, and the last judgment. And in this passage, we see Jesus set forth all three. And Jesus is wrapping up his all of that Discourse, really his final sermon, to his disciples to talk about the most odious truths of the Bible. Odious, that is, to fallen man. They don't like these things. People hate these truths because they have a sinful high view of self, an unbiblical and irrational high view of mankind, which is frankly sinful. They hate the idea of hell because they assume, aside from a few rascals like Hitler or Lenin, no one really deserves to go to hell, especially not themselves. They have a high view of man and a low view of God. They hate the idea of predestination because they long to believe they're good enough, that at least they're good enough to ingratiate God to themselves, to do a few things to merit God's favor, really to extort God out of God, heaven, and eternal life by their free will choices. And people hate the idea of the last judgment because they want to believe that as mostly good humans, we're making our way to the divine. It doesn't really matter what path you're on. God is just going to bless anybody who tries. Reminds me of that Latin phrase that was really popular in the middle-aged Catholic church. God does not deny grace to those who do what's in their heart. Does that sound familiar? If you've watched a Disney cartoon, I'm sure it does. Most people believe this, and so they despise these... Doctrines, but as you look at the Bible, all three of these doctrines are here taught by Jesus Himself in regard to that last judgment. Now, you know, as you read the Bible, you'll find that there are three aspects to God's judgment in the end. I just want to, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to touch on this. That will lead us to our first idea in terms of demonstrating charity. These judgments are these aspects of god's judgments the first thing we see is what we see right here this this separation right we see this this separation that happens to all of humanity Jesus in this parable drew on a common side in those days. You have a shepherd usually would shepherd more than just uh, sheep. Usually there would be a mixed flock. Oftentimes sheep and goats would, would sort of mosey together. They could be shepherded in the same way. And so you could move around them and shepherd them in the same way. But at certain points, as a shepherd would know, you would need to divide the two. Perhaps when you go down at night, perhaps for breeding purposes, perhaps even for butchering purposes, for whatever purpose they would Divide the goats and the sheep. This would have been a common view, and Jesus uses this picture to picture what was happening, what will happen in the end of time, and God separating humanity. The sheep Jesus pictured here are His people, God's people, children of God, whom He will take to Himself, usher them to His eternal kingdom that He prepared for them. It says, "From the foundation of the world." The goats, on the other hand, represent those who are not His people. Jesus pictured here that they're on his left and those people God will say depart from me you cursed into the place that's prepared for the devil and his angels so separation sheep and goats his children are not his children those who predestined for salvation and those not this separation is sort of the first aspect of God's judgment in the end another aspect of God's judgment is that of reward for his people sometimes people call this the Bama seat or the the judgment seat of Christ For the true Christian, any good work begins with the will of God. The Spirit moves him, first and foremost, to have faith, repent of their sin, follow after Christ. And they know that that's not ultimately from them. That is from God. That is from the Holy Spirit. And then they realize throughout life, as they pursue righteousness and goodness and godliness and holiness, as they pursue this, this is really God working in them for the willing and working of His good pleasure. But in the end of time, what we see, what we find, is that God rewards us, rewards His children, gives us crowns, bejeweled crowns, crowns ultimately, though, that we will take and then we will cast at God's feet in worship of Him. Why? Because we knew it is Him all along. The final aspect of God's judgment in the end is sometimes called the great white throne judgment. This is when finality is set upon everything. All His prior judgments are now sealed and set in stone. It's when God's children are ushered to the new heavens and the new earth. Enjoy Him forever. It's when Hades is thrown in the lake of fire, the permanent place. These three judgments, as you read the Bible, you discover these three aspects of god's judgment now if you're like me you see this is all sort of aspects of one judgment other people say it's three separate times three separate judgment divided by time it doesn't really matter which one you believe simply that you believe it we see these things in scripture and more importantly that you are ready that you're ready for this judgment that you're ready for the first judgment really the great separation and this is where Jesus begins it's amazing when he wants to talk about charity to others he talks about judgment he begins and tells us a parable about judgment but that's what he wants in our mind so I want you to see this as we think about responding to Christ be ready a if you're taking notes be ready for the great separation Jesus actually starts there. He doesn't start with a parable and then explains the parable. He starts with the idea of God up on His throne separating mankind. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And we have this picture of Jesus on His glorious throne, separating people, the great separation. Revelation 20 talks about the separation. Verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, the book of life. The apostle John tells us, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were all judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And he talks about the final white throne, death, and Hades, thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If any man's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Great separation. You ready for that? You ready to stand before God? Those books to be opened? The first few chapters of Romans, Paul is arguing that unless a person casts himself entirely by faith onto Christ and refuses to trust in his own works and refuses to trust in his own religion or his ritual, he cannot be saved. He cannot be justified. And he's having this uh, imaginary argument with someone who's looking on some really bad people and and saying basically to, to Paul, the apostle... Hey, uh, well, I know they're going to hell, but I've been really good. Aren't the good things I've done, aren't, isn't this enough? Those people are really bad. Of course they deserve judgment. What about me? Paul says this in Romans 2, 2 We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those people who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, He will render to each according to His works. To those by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So that's the first idea. That's the opening salvo in this parable, the great separation. Now, flowing from that are other things we are to believe from what Jesus taught. What are these things? Well, one thing we should affirm here in terms of truth is B... Affirm the reality of the biblical heaven and hell. And Jesus clearly, in this passage, affirms this reality. Now, studies have shown that most people believe in the afterlife. Uh, this is not just for America, but all across the world. Most people believe in the afterlife. This would not just include Christians, but Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and animists and uh, even cults, a number of cults, they would believe in some sort of afterlife. Furthermore, most believe that there is uh, some kind of negative afterlife versus some kind of positive afterlife. Perhaps it's even referred to as heaven and hell. In fact, it wouldn't be shocking to any one of us to know that a lot of people, most people really, uh, particularly in, in a country that has a lot of Christianity like America or Korea, most people do actually believe in a heaven and a hell, a literal heaven and a literal hell what is significant here is that all-important adjective biblical heaven and hell and jesus when he's talking about these places he's not just giving us some sort of nebulous truth that we can just sort of guess and make up on our own what heaven or hell would be like is it reincarnation is it this or is it that no he is basing his truth his preaching on what had been taught about heaven and hell he's basing it on reality his own knowledge of heaven and hell in fact God, being creator, created heaven and hell. Jesus there with him doing the same creating. So it wasn't Brutus Nirvana. It wasn't Islamic heaven and hell. It wasn't reincarnation. It certainly was not us becoming gods of our own right. And Jesus believed in a biblical heaven... He believed in a biblical hell. A biblical heaven means, of course, all that is described in the Bible in heaven. A perfect, beautiful, brilliant place where God dwells, where He shines all His magnificent Shekinah glory, and all people worship Him. Learning from the story Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus, we know that there's a sort of a temporary heaven until the final heaven is created after that final judgment, when everything's sort of stamped in that final judgment after the white throne judgment our glorified body will dwell in that new, on that new earth and we'll have access to that new heaven. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.9, we can't even imagine. It's, our minds cannot even wrap around the beauty and the reality of heaven. In fact, when you read the book of Revelation and John is describing his, his vision, first of all, it is a vision of heaven. He wasn't actually walking around heaven. It was a vision of heaven. But if you, if you read it, what you find out, he, he's saying it's like this. This is the best I can come up with. The best he can come up with was, is a bunch of jewels. It's shining. It's gleaming. It's the most beautiful thing he could possibly imagine. The best thing he can come up with, the closest approximation, is just a place that's full of jewels and fine metal. It's beyond our comprehension, heaven. That's what Jesus had in mind when He talked about us entering His rest. It was entering this place of eternal joy and worship of God. Well, just as heaven is too glorious and beautiful for words, hell is too terrifying for words. There are some descriptions that help us understand the terror of this place, For one, we learn that there is no fellowship, there is no friendship, and that you are completely alone in hell. It's definitely not like a far-side comic. You walk walk down there, and you're sort of in a cave, and there's goofy-looking demons walking around with pitchforks. It's called outer darkness because you don't see anything. It's absolute blackness for eternity. You cannot open your eyes. There is not a moment when you can see something. You're all alone. It's called a bottomless pit. The idea is that you have this sensation of constantly falling, the terror of constantly falling and falling and falling and falling, never finding rest. Hell is described as a burning fire. Jesus even uses this here, the idea of a constant burning sensation, a burning torture, a place of eternal fire, Jesus calls it. Because of that, it's a place of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. One another thing you could add that Jesus says here, you could deduce it's not initially created for humans. It was created to eternally punish Satan and the demons, the other angels who followed him. But humanity, beginning with Adam and Eve, followed Satan. Sure, Satan, we'll do whatever you tell us to do. So humanity, by default, is destined for this place where Satan is, what God prepared for Satan. Unless God intervenes and saves someone, they're subject to the same damnation as even Satan. We can't wriggle free from this. This may be one of those truths, heaven and hell, this may be one of those truths that sometimes pastors get a little squeamish about, a little embarrassed about. Maybe they like to talk about heaven, but let's not get too deep about hell. They may scare a few people. People don't want to think that they're going to hell. Let's just make sure everyone knows and affirms they're going to heaven. Jesus taught more about hell than anybody else. I haven't gone through and counted myself, but it's been said that Jesus talks about hell more than He talked about heaven. Regardless, He believed in both. And Jesus, in readying us for the great separation wanted us to remember there is a heaven and there is a hell, and you will end up in one or the other. Now, those are the first two truths here. Third, we're moving into sort of the meat of what Jesus said. See, understand works are a result of salvation, not the cause. Works are a result of salvation, not the cause. I want you to look at verse 34 again. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will... Answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now what we're seeing here are the sheep, the people of his God, on the right side, asking when. What this reveals is that these people were doing what was inherently true about themselves... They weren't doing it to merit favor with the king. They didn't know this was for Christ. They didn't know this was something that that Christ was coming to them like an angel unaware or something. They they were just doing it out of the, the depths of their heart, their regenerated, changed nature. They had been changed, and they were doing this out of the fullness of their heart. They didn't know it was measured. They were not doing it to fill the boxes on some sort of merit system. They weren't legalists in the least, trying to work their way up to God. What they were doing was simply what was true to what God had done in their hearts. It is parallel to what the prudent stewards did. It's parallel to what the wise virgins did. It's parallel to what the good servant did. God had done a work on their hearts, and the evidence is not that they were trying to earn their way to heaven. They were simply responding to the goodness and kindness and love that God had shown them. They were simply good, wise, prudent, and loving. And the Bible is very careful to lay out this principle that works are the result of salvation, not the cause. Romans eleven six 6 says this, If salvation is by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be Grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you know this. It is by grace, meaning unmerited gift of God. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, including the faith, is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The truth of all genuine believers that their faith is not in ceremony or ritual or church attendance or doing good works. Why? Because they know that if they trust in themselves to do those things, they will fail and fall every time. Do they have faith in Christ alone? And through that faith, they are justified, they have new hearts, and they pursue after Christ because it is their chief end to glorify Christ. That's why there's this astonishment. When? We didn't even know. We're just living life, loving people, watching what Jesus did and trying to do what He did. It's what we desire to do. they are not trying to merit salvation. It flowed from their heart that God had changed. The other thing this question, when, reveals is the the genuineness of these actions. Again, it flowed from this regenerated heart. I love what Paul says right after Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Essentially, he's saying, you're not saved by works in 8 and 9, but by grace through faith. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them. In other words, you're not saved by good works. You are saved for good works. You're not saved by works, you're saved to produce true, spirit-led good works. No longer are these good works an effort to save yourself, to merit salvation, to impress God, to extort from Him salvation. He demand sort of payment for the good we've done. No way. Now good works are a result of gratitude and worship for what God has done in you. Titus 2.14, Christ gave Himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify himself with a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. We read heard read from Titus 3 early today. He saved us verse 5 not because of works done by us in righteousness, but rather he says by the regeneration, the washing of the regeneration of the spirit, then verse 8 so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see, this love that the sheep had, God's true children had, is not based on some merit system, not based on some idea of climbing a ladder to God and doing enough good stuff that in the end, God has sort of forced His hand and sort of forced a letting you into heaven. No, this is the natural outworking of the Spirit who came to them in regenerating power. It's so natural to them to do what's right, to love what is right. They don't even know when they're doing it. They're not even uh, uh, attentive to all the times that they're doing right and doing good. When, they ask. This is just the pursuit of their life, to be like Jesus, to show the love that Jesus showed them. This charity should be definitive for all Christians. This brings us to the last sub-point here. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Point D, actively demonstrate charity to others. As we think about the end and what God is going to do at the end and what we see God's people doing, what are they doing? They're actively demonstrating love and charity to others. What does Christian charity look like? Well, Jesus in this passage gives us a few examples Positive for the true believer, negative for the unbeliever. What are those examples? They give food to the hungry. They give drink to the thirsty. They give shelter to the homeless. They clothe the destitute. They give comfort to the sick. They visit people in prison. I want you to know this list is not comprehensive, meaning this is not the full guide, and there's no other way. Just these ways are the ways in which you ought to love others or charitably give. You know this because there's other things offered as examples of Christian charities. charity. James mentions ministry to the widows and the orphans, for instance. This is also not restrictive, meaning it's not the bare minimum. There may be other things you can do in terms of charity. We're not limited to this. These are just examples. First Timothy, 2 Corinthians, see giving to the local church, Acts, and in 3 John, hospitality, giving to other Christians, helping other believers... Now, this is neither comprehensive nor is at the bare minimum. What Jesus is getting at is a charity, a love for others, is the natural outpouring, the natural way of life for true followers. People get into their lives a, a purposeful, habitual, sacrificial love for others, giving to others, Why? because we have received the greatest gift of all. Of all people in the world we should know what love and giving is. Of all people in the world we should know what it means to be destitute and broken and utterly totally helpless. And someone comes along and shows us kindness and grace, he forgives our sins and not only been given a new heart, but given the promise of eternal life and glory forever, the adoption as children of God. And so, of all people, we should be a people who give to others. Is that what your life will be described as? Is that what's going to go on your tombstone? Better yet, is this, is how, is this how your spouse would describe you, as a giver or a taker? That will be true of all genuine believers. God's people are a giving people. They demonstrate charity. This demonstration is a demonstration of what God had done in their own hearts. And that demonstration goes all the way to the end as revealed in the great separation. Ready yourself by being a person of charity. But well, let's pray that God would help us do just this. Father, You have given us Your Son. What a magnificent gift. What an incomparable, infinite, infinitely gracious gift that you and your Son would come and be incarnated, that He would live on this earth in this filthy, sin-filled, disease-ridden earth, live that perfect life die the atoning death, also those things, the perfect life and atoning death, could be applied to a bunch of rotten, helpless sinners. What an amazing gift. Now, Lord, may we go and show that charity to one another. May it begin in our families. May it spread to others on the outside. May we be, of all people, givers showing love and charity. Lord, for those who don't know You, I pray that they would see this great separation coming and they would respond to the great gift You've given in Jesus Christ. They would trust in Him, believe that His righteousness is what they need to get into heaven. And that righteousness only covers them when they believe in Him and believe in His death that it truly pays for their sin. And Lord, grant them the faith also to believe in His resurrection, that He has power over sin and death. Lord, bring them into the kingdom even now. Fill their hearts with a desire to do just as You've done for them, to give. Help us show charity to the people in this world. Help us be people who show love for one another and for all people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me for a benediction, and we will be finished. Now may we go out into the world as givers, charitable to others because of God's gracious and numerous gifts to us, not the least of which is His Son, so that we could be with Him eternally.